Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to see y'all out this morning uh, on what's turning out to be a beautiful Lord's Day. If you're joining us by live stream, welcome. We're glad you're uh, along for our time of worship this morning as well. If you're out in the hallway, make your way on into the sanctuary as we enter into worship. A few announcements first. Um, first of all, we just want to welcome any of our first-time guests or uh, folks that maybe we hadn't seen in a while. Good to see you guys. Great to have you. Um, those of you joining us by live stream, we miss you. We uh, are beginning to see um, more and more start coming back as they get uh, as folks get their vaccinations. And so uh, we want you to stay healthy, so look forward to seeing many of you soon. Here at East LJ Baptist Church, if you are visiting with us for the first time, we want you to know that we have been captivated by Christ. In Jesus we have seen, and we cannot unsee the glory of God in the grace of God, given through the life, death, and resurrection, and the ongoing reign today of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that message, that reality, He has captivated us. We exist here at East LJ to spread our enjoyment of the beauty of Christ to the world. That's why we're here. Everything we do is all about that. And it's our prayer that you would see and embrace the beauty of Christ and enjoy and find yourself captivated by Him as well. A couple of quick announcements. First of all, uh, we've been talking about the possibility of a Stackstones membership class. There will be no Stackstones membership class uh, at this time. So we'll talk about that in, in the future. Um, just, no, just really not any, in, only one uh, person signed up for that, so we'll uh, hold off on that for now. What we won't hold off on is praying for your six for six uh, between now and Easter. We started this last week. You can find these little slips of paper on the um, desk on your way out. hope you picked one up last week. Last Sunday was six weeks away from Easter. The idea is you write down six folks that need Jesus and you start praying for them for the next six weeks by name every day. And then as the day gets closer, invite them to join you either via live stream or here in person for Easter Sunday morning service. Folks, are, it's the second best time of the year to invite somebody to church. They're more likely to come, second, second best time they're mo most likely to come uh, any time of the year. So uh, do you know six people that need Jesus? If you, most of us do, if you don't, then you need to meet some people that need Jesus so you can put six on this list and be praying for them and then invite them to join us on Easter Sunday morning. So uh, I've got my list and have begun to pray. Also, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper today, obviously, as it's here in front of me. And so looking forward to a great time of communion as we close out the service that way today. Missions Committee. We will be meeting tomorrow at 7 o'clock. Church, we as the, uh, the missions, your missions committee is considering, uh, we'll be considering tomorrow night another new mission partner. Um, and so we'll be bringing that to you as soon as we get through that process of um, uh, vetting and interview and so forth with, with the potential foreign missionary. Also, we're going to announce today that conference will be next Sunday morning. If this changes, we'll tell you, but plan on conference next Sunday, I should say afternoon, just right after the worship. Um, an important conference, uh, as they all are, keeping you up to date with what God's doing uh, behind the scenes and um, on the business side of our, uh, our ministry. But next Sunday particularly, we will be bringing uh, a job description for uh, the, the staff person that we're in the beginning the process to search for, uh, youth pastor and children's administrator. And so that job description is complete. We'll come to you as the church in conference next Sunday 
immediately following the worship service. I want to give a big thank you to the ladies of East LJ Baptist Church. And all the men start clapping right now, right? This is when you do that, guys. Man, y'all are good. So just want to give that shout out and thanks to the ladies of East LJ Baptist Church. Just in recent days, um, meals have been provided, you know, most of us never know about this unless I get up here and tell you. Meals have been provided to grieving families. Meals have been provided for uh, families with newborn babies along with gifts to, uh, to sort of shower them without a shower. Um, and, and also for folks in health crisis, just meals and, and care and concerns been given by the ladies of our church. And so, ladies, thank you for all that you do all the time. And uh, sometimes, we, sometimes I don't even know what's going on, and uh, we just appreciate your servant's heart and your willingness to minister. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 11? This is where we'll be at the time of the message uh, as we continue studying through the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, we're going to read verses 14 to 28. You'll see those on the screen in front of you there. It says, Of Jesus, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This morning we are thankful that we have heard the message of the gospel, that we know Jesus and that we can call God through him our Father. We can pray to Him. We can talk to them. That's what we've been looking at uh, in the last few weeks. What a privilege it is to know God, to know the gospel, the word of God, to be saved by the grace and mercy of God in Christ. But so many people, even as we've already been talking this morning, that you know don't yet know Him. And we're tasked, we're commissioned to take the good news 
to them. But we're not only commissioned to take the good news to our neighbors, uh, we're charged by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations, even to the end of the earth. And so every Sunday morning we pray for an unreached people group. That is a group of people who have less than 2% of their population that know Christ. Uh, many of these have, have, have no one in their population that have heard the gospel and trusted Jesus. Today, we want to pray for the Turkish-speaking Kurds in Turkey. 6,301,000 people with no evangelical witness whatsoever among them. So let's pray for them. We also will pray together for uh, some other families as we go to the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Father, thank you that we have heard the Word of God and by the power of your Spirit, day by day are walking to keep your Word, to live in the truth and fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd make us faithful to the commission you've given us to take the gospel to our neighbors Bring us out of guilty silence, Lord, if we are there in relationships at work, at home, in the neighborhood, with family. And give us a heart of love and overflowing compassion that we would speak boldly the good news of Jesus. Father, how we pray that you would raise up missionaries from in this room or from your body, wherever you may choose to do so, to reach the Turkish-speaking Kurds in Turkey. 6.3 million people without a gospel witness. Oh God, how we pray that the norm for your people would be to go, unless you tell us to stay. So many need to hear about Jesus. God, raise up from our midst more to take the gospel to the nations. And Father, even as we pray uh, for these and, and, and for, for the salvation of, of so many, Lord, we, we want to pray for the comfort of some of our own and, and those close to our church family. We lift up the Kincaid family today. Lord, we continue to pray for uh, Jean Hoyle and her family. We lift up Raymond Jacobs and his family as they have some difficult decisions with his care to make. God, we lift up uh, Ed Penland as he goes to uh, see a neurologist this week. And we continue to pray, Father, for Amanda Bankston. Uh, she waits for results uh, from her PET scan, uh, I think, tomorrow. Father, thank you that all of these and so many more, you see and know intimately. You are well acquainted with everything they're going through. And for each of us in this room, everyone under the sound of my voice, Lord, you know us inside and out. There's nothing about us you don't know already and see. And yet, knowing us fully, you fully and completely love us and extend grace to us. And if we've trusted Christ, indwell us by your Spirit. Father, what mercy. We thank you. We look forward to how you're going to answer these prayers. We pray, Father, now that in this hour, Christ would be lifted high. And that as he is lifted up, he might draw all men to himself. That we in him might be fully satisfied and yet ever longing for more and more of his fullness and his goodness. Drinking ever more deeply of his grace. We pray it all for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Remain standing as we enter into worship and song.
Let's all sing together. I'm glad you joined us this morning.
Jesus, thank you that that is exactly who you are. You are the everlasting God. You reign above all. There is no other name any higher, anyone more powerful today in the universe than you, Lord Jesus, and you are our King. Father, you are our Abba, our Daddy. What a privilege to be called the children of God, and what love that would send your own Son to make enemies into children. What grace, what mercy. May we see the reign of Jesus crystal clear this morning. And oh God, how I pray that no one in this place or joining us by live stream, that not a single one we continue in rebellion against the King of kings and Lord of lords. But that each and every one would bow and surrender to the one who loved them enough to lay down his own life freely that we might be forgiven, declared eternally righteous in him and by virtue of His righteousness and all the days of our lives and for eternity be children treasured and loved and fully accepted of the living God all because of Jesus Spirit of God we need your help we need you to be our teacher. And so we pray that you would do that right now, God, that you would open our hearts and minds, even as we open your word. That you'd teach and change us, transform us by the scriptures that we consider together now. All for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. All right, we'll be dismissed to Children's Church. And as they're making their way out, I invite you to turn, me, turn with me in your Bibles back to the passage that we read a bit earlier to Luke 11. Where we'll pick it up in verse 14 in just a few minutes.
Pastor Dean and Sarah, in his book, The Unsaved Christian, tells the story of a guy named Danny. Danny is a, a great guy. He's always stepping in to help his wife with housework and pick up the kids so that she can be present at work. Danny never misses a single event that his kids are involved in, and all the other dudes around Danny secretly hate him because all the wives wish their husbands were more like Danny. By all accounts, Danny is a fantastic guy. And when you think of your lost friends, you'd never think of Danny because, honestly, he behaves better than you do. He's a better husband. He's a better dad. There's no glaring character flaw in Danny. And unlike some other people that you know who feel their failure and need for a Savior, you and Danny kind of feel like he's got it all covered. In fact, he almost seems unapproachable for that gospel conversation because neither you or Danny know really how you'd get to that part of the gospel where we talk about Jesus being our only hope. You'd never, ever imply that it would even be remotely possible that Danny, the fantastic guy, was on his way to hell. Do you know anybody like Danny? See if you, what you think about these, the following statements, again, borrowing from Dean and Sarah's book called The Unsaved Christian. I've recommended it to you before. I would just urge you to read it uh, one more time. Statements like this. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Do you agree or disagree? Agree? Everybody agree? Hello, raise your hand. Okay, yes, we're going to vote. We're going to vote and see what's true, right? That's a joke. We don't vote to see what's true, right? Here's another one. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Agree? Okay. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about one's self. Any takers? Okay, good. You passed the quiz on that one. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Okay, no. Good people go to heaven when they die. Anybody? Any takers? And yet, how many people do you know that believe all those things? And define being a Christian by those statements. You see, that's not Christian truth, is it? It's the ethics of good old-fashioned, and I can just say it because I'm one of you, Southern moralism. Moralism. Dean and Sarah comments on these things when he says, A moralistic therapeutic deist... Okay, let me just define that. Moralistic, all about being good, therapeutic, and thereby reforming yourself and modifying your behavior. Deist believes in a God. So a really good person that believes in God mistakes the true gospel for general civility 
and removal of guilt through behavior modification. And in our text for today, Jesus exposes moralism for what it is, and he boils all of life down to its most important question. And here's the title of the message and the most important question you can ever ask yourself, are you for or against Jesus? The truth I want you to take home is this. Every person, every person without exception, has to decide in light of the obvious power of God in Jesus if he or she will be for or against Jesus. There is no other option. You don't get to make up a third multiple choice answer. You are either with Jesus and for him or you're against him. Verse 14 of Luke 11. It says of Jesus, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. So the demon had made the man unable to speak in in which he was living. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said... He casts out demons by Beelzebul or Satan, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now at this point in the story, Jesus could have just completely obliterated those Jews who had just accused him of being the tool of Satan. At this point, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, could have, and according to justice and justice alone, should have just burned them right there on the spot, fried them in their tracks, because they just looked at the Son of God and said, that guy is empowered by Satan to cast out demons. But mercifully and graciously, Jesus begins to appeal to them. Jesus doesn't even harshly denounce them. He wants them to see the truth. He wants them to reject such foolish thinking. He wants them to turn from their blasphemy and truly know Him for who He is. And if you're here today or if you're listening via live stream and maybe you're, I don't, you, you don't even really know why you're here or why you're listening via live stream because you don't buy it. What you know about Jesus, you, you're, you don't really you don't strongly buy it. Can I tell you this? He wants for you today to see him as he is, to really know who he is. And he's full of mercy and grace toward you. So will you track along with us as we walk through some points, at the, especially at the beginning of the message here, where Jesus speaks to you and wants to help you turn from your unbelief toward him. Notice as we began to unpack these verses in verses 17 and 18, first of all this morning, four points this morning, first of all, accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan is not only blasphemy, it's absurd. Look at it. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. He's thinking about their thoughts where they said, this guy cast out demons according to Satan, Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. That's kind of a hard thing to say. You see, accusing Jesus, his point here, is that accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan is absolutely absurd. Saying that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons is absurd. Like, it doesn't even make logical sense to make that foolish statement, because think about it, a kingdom that's at civil war, what's it going to do? It's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy itself. A household that has internal strife, what's it going to do? It's going to destroy itself. A nation divided, a, 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 a household at war doesn't make for peace, right? A kingdom divided doesn't grow the kingdom, it reduces and destroys the kingdom. And Jesus said, so... so so if I'm working for the devil to cast out his demons, like what sense does that make? Why would the devil sign anybody up to cast out his own demons doing his, his and his mind, good work, his wicked and evil work? Accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan is absurd. But secondly, notice in verse 19, accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan is hypocritical. In verse 19, Jesus says, and if I cast out, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, emphasis on I, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they, that is your sons, will be your judges. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Jesus knows and they know, but we're kind of out here thinking, what, what, what's all that talk about? What's he, why is he talking about their sons and their sons casting out demons uh, inferred there? So in that day, and, 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 and even in this area where Jesus was, Jewish exorcists who supposedly cast out demons were well-known. They were accepted by the rabbis of the day, even at times endorsed by the rabbis of the day. And so there were, there were Jews who supposedly were exorcists casting out demons. Now, the reality is, and we see this from Scripture, we, we, we get that, that vibe from Jesus here and kind of implied from Jesus here. All they really were was showmen and charlatans. They weren't really casting out demons. Their business was moral reform. What they did do was they had a, some formulas and just, you know, they would whatever, do all kind of theatrics. But the point was to get folks to clean up their act. To get folks to turn over a new leaf. To keep on aggravating somebody till finally they just gave up a bad habit because it made them more acceptable in the Jewish culture. Their business was to start getting, to get people to start behaving better. You know, it's just it's, it's, it's time just to kind of leave the party life behind. I just kind of kind of be a, a normal person and not do not party all the time. I'm just going to kind of live my life and be routine. Stop doing certain things. Start doing other things. And so Jesus says here, okay. So, we've already talked about it. It's absurd to say that Satan has signed me up to cast out his own demons. But, but let's just back up and, okay, guys, I'll give you that that's true for just a second for the sake of argument. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's really stupid. 
But again, for the sake of argument, we'll let it stand for a minute. If you're going to accuse me of doing what I just did by the power of Satan, then what about your own exorcist, some of your own sons? Why don't you accuse them of doing their work by the power of Satan? I mean, they don't even actually cast out demons in the first place. They're just moral reformers. No one has ever seen, Jesus would say to these guys, a naked, raging madman completely changed into a clothed, normal, and peaceful man until Jesus did it there among the gatherings and sent a legion of demons into a herd of pigs. So those supposed supposed exorcists of yours, Jesus said, they're going to be your judges. Your defense of them will prove how hypocritical your accusing of me of doing Satan's work really is. You're not going to walk away from this public blasphemy of the Son of God unscathed and unexposed for the hypocrites that you truly are. Jesus said, not going to happen today. This is who you guys really are. What you're saying is, one, absurd. But it's also hypocritical because you don't lay the same charge on your own sons, your fellow Jews who are supposed exorcists. Just me. Accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan is absurd and Hypocritical. But notice thirdly that mere moral reform, the kind of stuff these Jewish exorcists were doing is doubly damning. Doubly damning. You say, what in the world? Well, we'll get to it. Jesus himself said that, and we'll see that in a minute. Mere moral reform is doubly damning. These verses are describing the work of the Jewish Exorcist, verses 24 to 26. Let's know what Jesus says. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, that's a demon, right? We all together. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, this is an image. This is a picture describing the desert. But this is not saying that the demon literally goes out into the desert and looks around. There's nobody in the desert, right? What, what this is saying is just like if, if, if we were wandering in the desert, we'd be lost. We, would, we, we couldn't find a, a place to, to live or, or to, to survive. Same for this demon. The idea is a demon without a host is not a happy demon. Y'all with me? A demon wants to be possessing someone, ruining their lives, wreaking all kind of havoc in their existence. Passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, well, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept. And that house is a person's heart swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Does that make sense? This guy had a demon. We'll talk about this part in a minute. He, de- he decides to, to, to check out. He goes and decides he's going back. When he goes home and finds home to this person's heart and he finds everything's cleaned up, 
This person's changed, but there's still nobody living in the house. He says, man, there's room for seven. They've done such a good job cleaning up. I'm going to go get seven buddies. And so at the end of the day, the, the guy that was possessed by one demon is possessed by how many? Eight. Hello. Things were worse at the end than they were at the beginning. And so, when he comes back, he finds this empty house. What's important in this is that, not just that it's empty, but Jesus isn't there. In the heart, in the home of this man's heart. But it's all cleaned up. It's been morally reformed. This person has changed how they live externally. And he gets this diabolical idea, I'm going to go get some buddies, and all of a sudden eight demons are in the house. But here's the thing to follow. Think about what would happen next. But now, the eight demons living in this cleaned up, on the outside life, they don't make him start living immorally again. They keep him content in his morality, content in his self-righteous pride. They keep him without any perceived need for Jesus or the kingdom of God in his life. The first demon talks to his buddies and he says, boys, this is the easy life. I mean, we, man, we got it made now. We don't have to convince this host of ours to do drastically ungodly, awful, lewd, and immoral things. Man, that's hard work sometimes. I mean, some of the stuff I've convinced people to do, I had to work really hard to get them to cross that line, right? But guys, all we got to do is just tickle his pride about how good he is. How good he's doing living right and being good and being moral. Hey, all we got to do is just keep him believing he's good enough. And that this change of his makes up for all his past so that he just doesn't at all have any perception of his own sinfulness and guilt before God. And then most importantly... If we, can do, if we can just keep him satisfied, then he won't ever feel any need for a Savior. He won't ever feel a need for Jesus to move into his house. What a life, guys. We can, we, hey, we can ride this wave till this old boy dies. And day after day, after day, professing Christians are living just like that until the moment they bust the devil's hell wide open. Because they were good, good people. Empty of Christ himself. In Matthew 23... Jesus denounces these moral, reforming, supposedly exorcist-type people and the self-righteous, those that, that convince people of their own goodness. In, in Matthew 23, he's, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees in particular. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. By the way, there's no other place in all of history that we can find out more about hypocrisy and, and moral reform. Uh, no, 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 no group of people has ever been more interested in moralistic, therapeutic deism than the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Listen, and when, you, and when he becomes a proselyte, a follower, one who accepts your teachings, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you, like, you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Back there in Matthew 25, what's Jesus saying? Where do we get the idea that mere moral reform is doubly damning? What Jesus is saying is, these Pharisees would, literally, they, would, they, they had missionaries. They would go to take their way of thinking about God and, 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 and life to, to, to other people in other places. And, and when they would convert somebody, Jesus said, those people that were converted were doubly damned. Why? Why the language of, of twice the child, as much the child of hell as the Pharisees themselves? Because, you see, they were convinced that and, 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 and under the authority of those Pharisees. The Pharisees were in error. They were living in their own self-righteous pride, but, but their converts, they were convinced to live in their own self-righteous pride as well. But more than that, they had the authority of the, the Pharisees sanctioning that way of living. Twice as much the child of hell as the Pharisees. John MacArthur makes a striking statement that I hope you won't miss. It is better to be immoral than moral without Christ. That's what this passage is all about, guys. It is better to be immoral than to be moral without Christ. If you look through the Gospels, go ahead, take, your, take, take, take the next week and do this. Read the Gospels. Read the book of Acts. It was never the immoral people that blasphemed Jesus. Never. It was always the moral ones. It's never the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the riffraff, the criminal element. It was the religious people. It was the self-righteous folks. It was the Pharisees and the scribes. And the truth of the matter is, the Pharisees and the scribes, MacArthur says, may be more infested with demons than a prostitute or a criminal. Y'all okay? It's kind of getting up in there, isn't it? Morality and religion, why is that? Why would, why would John MacArthur make that statement that it's better to be immoral than moral without Christ? Because morality and re religion give the deception that all is well with God when it is not. Morality is a soul-numbing deception. As long as a person believes he's immoral, hey, you know what? If you, if you know you're a sinner, then you know you need a Savior. 
And you can get a guy that knows he needs Jesus to trust Jesus a whole lot quicker than you can get a guy who thinks he's got it all together. He's, he's, he's good. He's really good. He's fantastic. When a person comes to believe in his own righteousness, he believes he doesn't need a Savior. And that's why mere moral reform is doubly damning. There were the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Hey, we've had our own versions here in America, right? The moral majority, the religious right, whatever it may be. All about morality. Listen, the world doesn't need morality. The world needs Jesus to move in their house. And sit on the throne of their heart and occupy and change from within. All moral reform will ever do is try to change people from the outside while they are full of dead men's bones on the inside. And Jesus said it makes them doubly damned because it numbs them to their own sin and need of a Savior. Fourthly, in verses 20 to 22, we find this simple truth. You don't have to go through some big, long argument to try to convince, convince people the power of God. Why? Because the power of God, number four, the power of God is obvious and self-authenticating. The power of God is obvious and self-authenticating. That last part just means it authenticates itself. When you see, when you see the power of God in action, it proves that it's the power of who? God. Verse 22. Jesus says, you know, you've accused me of all this stuff. But then he turns and he gets right down to the meat of it. But if this whole casting out demons thing, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jews knew all about the coming of the kingdom. They talked about it all the time. They longed for the coming of the kingdom, and they had some things mixed up. They, they had this perception of Messiah who would come and overthrow the Romans and, and, and this whole political power kick that they had in mind when they thought about the kingdom of God, but they knew what the kingdom of God was. And, and Jesus said, here's the deal. If, I've just shown you how absurd it is to say that this, this thing is of Satan, that, that Satan would cast out his own demons. I've showed you how hypocritical it is because y'all got people doing the same thing, but you never accuse them of that. I, I, I've told you, mere moral form, that'll just doubly damn people. You're not, you've not helped anybody. What I want you to see is if it is by the finger of God, if, the only other option, right? If it's not of Satan, and we've shown, we've shown it's not, Jesus said, then, then what you've got to realize is if this, thing's of, if this is the finger of God at work, then guys, the kingdom of God is right here. You're talking, in fact, to the king of the kingdom. You're face-to-face with God himself. Verse 21, when a strong man, in this case representing Satan, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he, that would be Jesus, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus said, if this is the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. And let me just tell you what really just happened. 
I'm not working for Satan, casting out Satan's own demons. I'm the king of the kingdom of God, and I just came and cleaned Satan's house. I just came and robbed a soul from the kingdom of darkness. I took, I took this man out of the kingdom of darkness. I threw out Satan's, Satan's demons, and I took this person back for my own. He's mine. Because I'm the stronger man than the strong man. Matthew 12 is the parallel passage to this. You can take more time to look at it. We're going to read several verses in the next little while, but you can go back and look at the fullness of it later. Matthew 12, 29 says, same story, Jesus speaking, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless, a little different language here, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. I mean, if it, you know, bottom line, you, you, can't, you can't rob the guy unless you tie the guy up so he doesn't aggravate you while you're robbing him. You with me? That's what Jesus said he did with the devil. That's what he does every time he rescues someone from the evil one. Jesus, the strongest, has bound the not-so-strong man, Satan. And Jesus is daily plundering his house, his kingdom, as he, Jesus, expands his own kingdom throughout the world today as the gospel is preached and men, women, boys, and girls all around the world are trusting Jesus and being snatched from darkness and brought into the glorious light of Christ and having the home of their hearts occupied by the Spirit of Jesus Himself who will never leave. There's no one to run Him out of that house. He's the King. And in our lives, if we trust Him, the King has come to live in our hearts. And all of a sudden, that place that was so tormented by sin and all of Satan's Demons, listen to me, it's a secure home. It's a peaceful home. Doesn't mean there's not battles to fight in the Christian life. That's just not where we're at today in this message, right? There's battles, there's a war going on. But the king is at home. A quick aside about the present and future kingdom of God. Do you notice Jesus said, if this is the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come. God's doing this, then then his kingdom's here. So just a quick aside about the kingdom of God. I'm just going to use a proper quote to to do that. We're not diving deep here. But this is the mystery of, or the secret of the kingdom. The arrival of the kingdom in a preliminary small way in advance of that final consummation that we think about when all the enemies will be defeated and all sin and satanic power and sickness and suffering will be gone forever. The mystery, as, as one commentator, George Ladd, puts it, is fulfillment without consummation. That's where we live. We live in the kingdom today. Jesus' kingdom came in the person of Christ. It was inaugurated and began then. The kingdom has been fulfilled, but it's not been consummated. That's one way to think about what the kingdom of God is all about and how that plays out in history Fulfillment of the kingdom is here, but consummation of the kingdom is not. Many kingdom blessings can be experienced today, but many are reserved for the consummation and the coming of Jesus. And so when we think about Jesus making this statement, if this is the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. It's come in that sense. It's come in fulfillment, but not in consummation. Jesus reigns over demons and Satan himself today. Back to the finger of God. Why does Jesus use that language? There's a reason he used that language. There's a a reference there to something in the Old Testament that his hearers would have understood. Back in Exodus 8, 
if you, if you turn back there, verses 18 and 19, what you'll find is we're right in the middle of um, Moses and the plagues with Pharaoh. And in verse 18, it says, well, let me just back up. Right before this, God has sent the plague of the gnats. There are gnats everywhere. Gnats are irritating, aren't they? Just imagine them being as thick as the air, just like you couldn't get away from them. You know, we're starting to, to, starting to get a little springy. Man, yesterday morning you wake up, it's in the 50s, and it's late February, last few days of February. Guess where you're going to be if you're me? Anybody got a guess? In the turkey woods. It's time to find a turkey because March 20th is coming fast. Well, yesterday was my first experience with gnats for the season. Well, here they are in Egypt, and there's gnats everywhere. You can't, you, I mean, you suck them in when you breathe. They're going up your nose. They're everywhere. Just imagine it. Exodus 8, verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret, the Egyptian magicians, by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God. Jesus says, if this... You guys, you guys know your history. You guys all about the Old Testament and the Exodus, how God rescued his people. That was the finger of God back then. If this is the finger of God now, then the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. Again, MacArthur says, only the intentionally irrational, only the hypocritical and inconsistent, only the fleshly and carnal could ever look at Jesus and come up with any other conclusion than, 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 than that what he did, he did by the power of God. You see, the power of God is obvious and self-authenticating. When demons get cast out, that's God. Matthew 12, verse 28. There, instead of, if this is by the finger of God, it says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that is exactly, and listen, obviously, what was happening in this situation, right? But the rebellious, sin-hardened human heart will deny the obvious. Won't it? Pharaoh did. His own people said, that's the finger of God. And he still wouldn't repent. Right here in front of Jesus. Jesus standing there in the flesh, face to face with these people. They knew the guy who'd never spoken. They knew him. And suddenly he could talk. How do you deny that power and that it's from... You don't. The power of God is obvious and self-authenticating. But the rebellious, sin-hardened human heart can and will deny the obvious. As we've seen, these Jews were saying that Jesus was doing the work of Satan. Back in Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. Look at these verses with me. Again, parallel passage. Jesus says some, some of the same things here in these two verses, but then he, he, he goes a little further in, the, in Matthew's account. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you 
This is what he says after. Therefore, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is what's been called what? The unpardonable sin, right? Just a couple chapters later in, in, in Luke, Luke chapter 12, verse 10, it says something very similar. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So, so just in general, you know, you, you, can have some, you can have some questions. You can even have some, some bad things to say about Jesus. But when you come to Jesus and say, that's the devil at work like these people were doing? When you call what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is doing, the Spirit of Satan, then we got real problems, Jesus said. So what's the deal with the unpardonable sin? The English Standard Version Study Bible says this in this little notes there, study notes. The person who persists in hardening his heart against God against the work of the Holy Spirit and against the provision of Christ as Savior is outside the reach of God's provision for forgiveness and salvation. So in short, it's the unpardonable sin because a person rejects the pardon. Are you all with me? A person keeps on rejecting the pardon that's freely offered by God in Christ. If they reject the pardon, how can they be pardoned? They can't. They're choosing to not be pardoned. That is the unpardonable sin. And in effect, what they're doing is is, is calling what the Spirit of God does in exalting Jesus, they're calling it the work of Satan because they're denying Him to be an all-sufficient Savior. And hear me, it's utter blasphemy. It's damning blasphemy. Straight to hell if you continue in it kind of blasphemy. For the person that unrepentantly lives there. And this person alone, there is no hope. You realize a true devil worshiper can repent and be saved? Hello? Did you hear what I said? And we've known of them. We've, we've heard stories of them. Actual Satanists. They go to church to worship the devil. They can repent and say that that is sin, that Jesus is holy. They can turn from, from the enemy to the Savior and be saved. But the person who never acknowledges the obvious power of God in Jesus, hear me, will never be saved. And they may be a good, good boy. The power of God is obvious. And self-validating. Simply said in the words of Jesus himself there in verse 23 of your text. Luke 11 verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's Jesus saying? Either you invite me into your house and I live there. The king sits on the throne of your heart. 
Or you live with the host of hell reclining in your living room, the living room of your heart. Those are your choices. You pick. And then there's verse 27 and 28. As he said these things, can you imagine hearing all this? As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, just imagine, Whoo! Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said to her, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. Don't try to flatter Jesus like this gal did. Follow him. Right? That's what he's saying. Don't try to flatter him. There's a world of people in American churches and all around the world who simply come to church to flatter Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus. They want to be good people. They don't want, to, they don't want all the trouble that comes when you get into deep sin. And they just flatter Jesus. Jesus, I'm not interested in your flattery. Die to yourself every day. Take up your cross and follow after me. That's what I'm interested in. That's what it means when the king comes and puts his throne in your heart and rules your life. That's what it means when you've been forgiven by my grace and made righteous in my sight and are indwelt by my spirit. That's what your life looks like. It's not enough to respect Jesus. It's not enough to think well of Jesus. Jesus said, you must believe the word of God which says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord and surrender your, your life to the indwelling power of His Spirit. Every person has to decide in light of the obvious power of God in Jesus if he or she will be for or against Jesus. There is no other option. And so if you're listening to me today, which, which will it be for you? Which will it be? As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I, I, I couldn't help but think at this point of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, and also verse 21, where Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, talking about this table that we're about to partake of, the cup of blessing we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ, that's a commentary on the Lord's Supper, by the way, by Paul himself. And basically what he's saying is when we drink this grape juice here in a few minutes, we're participating in the blood of Christ. What we're saying is we're, we're, by, by drinking this cup, we're saying the blood of Jesus saves. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we will eat is a picture of our heart's participation and declaration and, and affirmation that Jesus' broken body on the cross is the only hope for salvation. Because there is one bread, we who are many, many believers, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's, it's a time of unity when we come to this table. We're all, all together being unified in, by the Spirit of God that indwells each of us because we confess the same gospel, the same word of God, the same salvation message. And so Paul then exhorts the Corinthians, because there was a lot of stuff going on. They had a lot of trouble. They were getting things all messed up, had a lot of sin in the church. In verse 21, he said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
They're mutually exclusive. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so it's either Jesus on the throne of your heart or you're still in the kingdom of darkness. Which will it be for you? Every person has to decide. In a lot of the obvious power of God in Jesus, if he or she will be for or against Jesus, there is no third option. So, if you've heard and are keeping the word of the gospel, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior and giving him the rule of your house by his Spirit, then this morning, brother, sister, this table that we're about to come to is for you. Will you prepare your hearts with me to commune with our all-powerful and victorious and strong Savior, even as we pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is our strong God. That he reigns over all. That he, his is the most powerful, wonderful, precious, beautiful name there ever could be. And he reigns today. What a privilege it is to know you, Jesus. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to raise us from spiritual deadness, to do a literal resurrection in our hearts and give us eyes to see so that we can see the beauty of Jesus, our own sinfulness and our need for him and his love and welcome of us to come in simple childlike faith. We want to celebrate your grace through the meal that you've given us. But we want to do it in a way that honors Jesus. And so, Lord, we want to heed these words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, where he exhorted the Corinthians and where we are thereby warned, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so Paul exhorted them, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then Paul told them, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God had judged his church because they played games at the Lord's table. They did not take this symbolic meal seriously. Many of them ate it just because they were hungry. Many of them ate it with no in heart's faith at all in the Lord Jesus. May we partake in a worthy manner. We, Lord, you know, we can't be worthy. We're unworthy, and yet we can show the value, the worth of the finished work of Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus by how we partake of this meal. So may we come sincerely. May we come depending on nothing else but Jesus for our standing with you and our eternity with you, our forgiveness of all of our sins. May we come that way like little children, believing what you tell us about Jesus. Sincerely coming and trusting him. Father, I pray that you would spare us from your judgment, your discipline as a father, and I pray, God, if there's any who 
are under your divine discipline even now, that, God, this would be the moment of their repentance, that as children of the living God, they would turn and look to you and be bathed afresh in your grace, that your hand of discipline could be removed from their lives. Father, search our hearts. I thank you that you see us even at the bottom. You know all that's in our minds. You know everything we think. You know a word before we even speak it. Search us and see if there be any offensive way in us. And Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. Lead us in obedience. Help us simply to follow Jesus. To die to ourselves. Say no to our sinful desires. Crucify our selfish ambitions and say, Jesus, you're the king. And you're on the throne of my heart. And you get to call the shots today and every day according to your word. Now, Father, as we come, may we celebrate. May we come with joy. May we find satisfaction again in remembering that your grace is sufficient and that salvation is all of grace. Be exalted, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Also in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, I received, for, what I, for I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the night before Jesus died, they were having the Passover meal, commemorating that deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from Pharaoh that we kind of were talking about a while ago back there in Exodus. And you remember that whole picture. There was imagery that pointed forward to Jesus put in place during the exodus of the Israelites. They were told the death angel, the final plague, the death angel is going to come over. And the, and the way that you save yourself as the people of God from, uh, from, from death is to take the, the blood of a, of a lamb and put it over the, the doorpost. And so the lamb of God came and shed his blood for the sins of the world. And Jesus takes the Passover, and in that night, he transforms it into the Lord's Supper. He, he moves out of the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper, and he says, this is really what it was all about. My body was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. My blood, it's the ink for the new covenant of grace and mercy and forgiveness of my indwelling spirit to change you from the inside out. When you drink it, remember me. Worship me. Remember, I'm the only Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Paul said, whenever we do this, we're proclaiming. We're, you guys, as you come up here in a minute, you're preaching a sermon. What you're saying in, the, in, the, in your eating and drinking is, I personally believe Jesus is my only hope. That's why I'm putting this piece of bread in my mouth. That's why I'm drinking this grape juice to say his broken body, his shed blood, had to happen if I have any hope of salvation from a holy God. And I believe it happened, and it's for me, and it's a done deal. He paid it all. It is finished.
So that's what you're saying when you come to this table. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And as you're standing, let me just give you a quick lesson on our COVID communion. If you're new with us today, what you need to understand is there's two layers of lids, okay? The first layer you need to make sure you get first is the clear one. If you start pulling and colors disappearing, you're fixing to have grape juice in your lap, okay? So get the clear lid first. That'll open up, and there's a piece of bread right there on top. Get that first. Then you open the grape juice. It's pretty, uh, you know, easy, but you just need to know there's two layers there. So be very careful. Also, if you're gluten intolerant, there's gluten-free crackers right here. And so what we're going to do as the worship team leads us in a song, we're just going to start over here. And we're just going to file right by here, and you just kind of however you get back, and we'll just keep the rope. We'll move from that section to this section, like, just like that. You come and serve yourself. Uh, the altar's open for you to, to, to worship however you need to. If you want to partake of the Lord's table at the altar, if you want to go back to your uh, seat, just whatever you want to do. I invite you this morning, though, to come to the table. Jesus said, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Won't you come and feast your heart on Christ even now?
beautiful thought. Jesus has come home into our hearts if we know him today. Just uh, remain in the spirit of prayer as the worship team comes and serves themselves the Lord, themselves the Lord's table as well. Just continue to worship as they join us in communion with Christ. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, your name is victory. You are the risen King, and may all of the worship of our lives rise to Christ the King. We give ourselves to you. Thank you that you live in us by your Spirit. May we live in the power of your Spirit in self-denying obedience for the glory of your name. 
We exalt you. Use us to rescue men, women, boys, and girls from the power of darkness, from the domain of the enemy, Satan, from the clutches of the demonic forces of this world. Use us through the preaching of the gospel to rescue many. We give ourselves to you and we praise you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for joining us via live stream. We're dismissed.